I V M. What is democracy? Democracy doesn't just mean voting one political party to power for five years and then sitting back and hoping it all works out. Democracy only functions well when there are safeguards that keep a check on the people in power, and mechanisms that keep governments transparent and accountable. In India, though, democracy has become just a once-in-five-year samasha. Government is an opaque, parasitic beast that sucks citizens dry while delivering no services to them. And the elections that happen every five years are a contest between competing mafias, all of them trying to bribe their way to power one way or another so they can rake it in while we suffer silently. What is a citizen to do? Welcome to the Seen and the Unseen, our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to the Seen and the Unseen. I tend to be a pessimist when it comes to government. Governments never grow smaller. It is in the nature of the beast to grow and grow like a parasite sucking the blood of the common citizen. And yet, we can't just sit there and let it happen. We need to fight back for our own sakes. And my guest today is a man who has spent two decades doing just that. V. Ravi Chandar, a businessman based in Bangalore, describes himself as a civic evangelist and a patron saint of lost causes. While those around him have merely outraged, he has actually dived into the cesspool that is local government and worked hard on bringing about reform. I caught up with him at the sidelines of the Bangalore Literature Festival a few weeks ago, and I found his insights to be incredibly thought-provoking. Without any further ado, here it is. Ravi, welcome to the show. Thanks, Amit, for having me. Ravi, I'm uh, really glad to have you here. And, you know, you've been working in the field of urban governance for the last 17 years. You're described by people as a civic evangelist. And you've described yourself as a patron saint of lost causes. So I want to delve a little further into this. Why? I mean, even though you're being ironic, why did urban governance seem like such a lost cause to you? And clearly, you don't really feel that way because you've been at it for 17 years. That's true. Actually, it all started in 2000 when we had the Bangalore Agenda Task Force. And Nandan asked whether I would serve on that. And I had no idea what urban governance was about. That, that's Nandan Nalikani, who's been Na, an old friend of that's yours. That's right. That's right. So I had no idea. And I said, okay. And trust me, within the first month of working in the space with civic authorities and the like, I just got hooked. I realized that this was an area that could do with a lot of reform. That was the obvious thing when you go with a private sector consulting mind. But as you worked within the system... You realize how dysfunctional it was, how difficult it was to get outcomes that people want in the city space. And when you work in an environment like that, you suddenly start thinking about what can you do differently? Uh, and we, I'll talk about the property tax reform that we did at that point of time. How you can bring make a difference in the public space with innovative ideas from outside. The reason for patron saint for lost causes, after 17 years... Well, we have Bangalore's traffic, we have Bangalore's potholes, and a whole lot more. So at one stay, at one level, it's a uh, lost cause in the sense that it's not getting fixed. But at another level, even when you make an inch of positive movement in this space, it gives you a whole lot of confidence that change is possible. And that's the reason I've been in a, at it for 17 years in Bangalore and some other cities. And, and even an inch of positive movement in the context and given the scale is actually a heck of a lot of... Uh, I think so. In fact, difference. I think you're going to see change in the space incrementally. 
marginally better tomorrow compared to thing. I don't think you're going to see a dramatic uh, day and night difference in urban governance. And here, actually, I'd like to take, for example, the of property tax that I mentioned earlier. Now, back in 2000, before that, we had a system of property tax where the revenue inspector came and decided what tax you needed to pay. And there was an adjustment between the revenue inspector and the house owner in terms of the tax paid and the money to be paid to him. We came up in 2000 with a self-assessment scheme of property tax built on a basic premise. Trust the citizen to tell the truth rather than a revenue officer to uncover a lie. So you make a very simple system by which people can comply. And what we noticed in that process is that more and more people chose to come forward under the self-assessment scheme. And if you see the statistics in Bangalore, property tax over the last 17 years has collections have jumped over 20 times under the self-assessment scheme. So the point really is, if you think differently about an issue like property tax, rather than having a command and control revenue inspector Raj, you have a citizen trusting system, you suddenly find that change is possible. And, and uh, you know, when you told me the story earlier when we were having breakfast today, it kind of blew my mind because it's very counterintuitive. It's the opposite way. People, you know, people in government generally think, oh, we have to control the citizens. We have to bring them to heal. And here what you're saying is, no, leave him alone. Let him self-assess. Trust the guy, he'll do it. And one reason it worked, of course, as you pointed out, was that under the older rent-seeking regime, you would have a certain amount of money going to bribes and a certain amount of money going to taxes. And here, even though the tax collection was higher, because they were paying zero bribes, uh, they uh, they uh, benefited as well by paying less money. Exactly. Actually, the system started getting more money and the revenue inspector was starved of his bribe. That was the essential reform that we did. And it worked because citizens loved it. And the other thing I realized in that process that once citizens taste something that they love in the civic space, it's almost very difficult to reverse it. In fact, the system did try to reverse the self-assessment scheme, but citizens protested saying, we like it, we want this. So the way to get change in the civic space is get the citizens to taste the good things that are possible, and that's the way change is possible. And how hard was it to, for example... um convince people about this kind of thinking when you first started doing your pro bono evangelism because typically in government people just want to expand their own power the incentives are towards increase your budgets and increase rent seeking opportunities and government never actually reduces power or gives up control and like this property tax incident you mentioned itself seems to me almost unbelievable like why would they just allow that opportunity from them to go away but in general while you had this one success do you find that mindsets are an impediment to getting things done Without a doubt. In fact, uh, you know, it's about power. It's about money. There's a whole lot of money riding on projects. In fact, uh, you know, anecdotally, I've built estimates of the kind of leakage in civic projects. And if you include ghost works, the extent of leakage in civic projects is almost about 50, 55 percent. That's the level, but including ghost works. So, but typically you can say as a rule of thumb, 25 to 30% in a project is definitely gone. So, so, you, so what are ghost works for just for my listeners? Because <laughs> Okay. So I found there were five categories of ghost works, for example. So you'll find project works, which, you know, there's a reason why they name roads with new names. So if you go actually to the project file, there will be one work in the old name of the road and the same work in the new name of the road. Wow. And unless you know that both the roads are the same, you've already created one ghost work. I have seen projects which say that while going uh, northwards, the left side of the road, 
and the same road project being described going the other way as the right side of the road. So that's another one. Then another one, you have private sector people coming and saying, I'll, I will do this road for you. Now, the civic system waits for that road to be completed as a donation by the private sector. And then they raise the same thing as a job in their works because the work's already done. And that's another kind of ghost work. And I could go on. Right. The problem really is we have a pretty dysfunctional system and it's a long road back to fix it. And uh, corruption and this is clearly one important thing to deal with. The other thing really is if you want to bring change in this place, uh, I think if you ask for change in terms of giving up power, etc., it's not going to happen. So you have to work in terms of uh, making the benefit case for the person doing it. So, for example, I hate to say it, but they like projects. So if they see there are possible projects at the end of this road, for example, in the case of property tax, the reason why they don't mind getting more money is the ability to do more projects. So they are okay with doing this because they know there are downstream benefits with more money in the system. You know, that's a very perverse kind of reality check for me because what it means is that whenever you then sell a plan or a project to these guys, you're not selling it to them because it's good for the citizens. You're selling it to them, you're keeping their own self-interest in mind that, hey, I'll have projects at the end of this or I'll be, you know, I'll have this much more. We don't, I mean, they have that in mind because they are able to smell the opportunities. In fact, we are naive. We are just saying these are good things to do and their mind is clicking away saying what are the possible downstream benefits of doing this. But over time, I guess you do keep into account how they are looking at it as well. Without a doubt. In fact, I keep saying, you know, the problem with a lot of theoreticians who give suggestions in the civic space, they come from what I call a systems theory outlook. Hmm. In a systems theory, it's this orderly world, everybody knows their place and things are happening in an orderly way. I always say that in this space, very crudely, we need a modified game theory. People, everybody has an agenda. They have their own goals and objectives. And the trick to get good outcomes, good people wanting good outcomes, have to understand everyone's motivation and find an alignment of stars of these diverse group of people, which gets you the good outcomes, but they believe that they're getting what they want. So I really feel that we need this whole new science to develop of what I crudely call modified game theory. Because frankly... To sit back and say people must be good, they must do good things is not going to happen. So we have to realize it's an imperfect world. And as I mentioned earlier, a dysfunctional setup. The trick is to really figure out how to navigate this system and still get some good out there. That seems deeply complex because you have all these self-interested actors acting in their own self-interest very rationally with different ends. And to find a way to sort of uh, nudge them in the same direction, it seems a very hard task. Let let me... Sorry. So there actually, Amit, I'd like to come in. For example, lots of people mention that a directly elected mayor in the city is the way to go, for instance. Which is really the second tire of state government giving their powers to the third tier of city government. Right. Not going to happen because mm. this is where the power lies. Mm. But you want them to give away power. In fact, I think uh, there's even a private member's bill in parliament seeking directly elected mayor. It's not going to happen. But if you start thinking about how it could potentially happen, if you look at our history, Sardar Patel, Nehru, Rajendra Prasad were all city mayors. They cut their teeth in city government before they went to state and national politics. So the way potentially to think about directly elected mayor is if we got the political dynasties of different parties, their children to convince their parents that I could be the mayor of the city, let's go for that route. And if they did it across parties, 
it has a greater chance of you getting the directly elected mayor because different political uh, scions of political families are saying this is the way to go than saying that the state must give away part to the third tier of city government because that is not going to happen so this is my example of thinking in terms of what could motivate people to give away part to a third tier the hand that lies with the political system and we got to figure out how to make that happen which which is very interesting and pragmatic and uh, something i hadn't thought of where what you essentially saying is that there are limits to democratic advocacy within the system so instead you subvert it by talking to the privileged elite so that they can use some of the privilege in taking the system in the direction yeah, that i don't want to be considered as a subversive guy it's just about being pragmatic as you said right we all know that you need the city you need somebody accountable a directly elected mayor that's the way to go right. everybody by and large agrees that the question is how do we get there and to me anything that gets us to a good outcome of that kind is worth considering and that's where i was coming to i mean people could make the philosophical argument that the end never justifies the means and therefore blah 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 but anyway the, 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 I, no, i've been a pretty pragmatic guy in this space because right. i'm very clear mm. that you know the ecosystem is quite compromised and uh, and uh, it's it's extremely difficult to make the moral argument to do the right thing right so we have to navigate this minefield so your sense would be look there's too much at stake and we have to be practical and get things done uh, somehow and that's that, that's my belief however we can so let me now take you back to a broader fundamental question uh what is wrong with our cities today the way they are governed see first thing is there's no one in charge of the cities to carry on with something i said earlier i think that's the fundamental thing it is too much under the state's control so whether it's bombay or bangalore or chennai which has a problem let's say it could be flooding potholes or whatever you will find invariably the chief minister of the state talking about it and that's the problem why should the state chief minister who is the state chief minister be answering questions about traffic and potholes in a city it's not his remit or her, her remit so I think we don't have clear cut accountability and somebody in charge of the city's destiny that's the start point our governance and administration structure is the, those institutions have collapsed we don't there was a 74th constitutional amendment we had the 73rd of panchayati raj for rural areas and 74th for cities that hasn't worked there's hardly any state that has implemented it so we now need to go back to the drawing board and come up with a governance and administration framework for cities that can work then there is a challenge of human resources and capacity you know this world bank came up with this thing that capacity building is the way out i think it's just a thing for getting consultants jobs because the reality is what we have got in the system to work with is extremely weak clay or quicksand and therefore to mold it is very difficult so we need a fresh infusion of ideas we need to think about human resources differently we need to think of lateral recruitment we need to think of a commissioner who comes from outside and becomes the city commissioner so we need some transformational thinking in this space the other thing about cities where everybody is making a mistake is they are trying to fix yesterday's problems unsuccessfully band-aid solutions we're not planning ahead what we really need to do if bangalore is to work the extended region has to work internationally the focus is on city regions london works because it's housed in the south england region same as the case with new york so if you improve bangalore even marginally another 
half a million people will come into Bangalore and the place will collapse again. So unless you have a regional clusters that work as live and work, you're not going to fix this problem. So there are a whole, the way we do our plans, they are also quite messed up in terms of, uh, so the master plan is nothing but a land use plan. It's about there's a price for the color by which various land parcels get covered. What you need are strategic spatial plans. We are nowhere there. I could go on and on. We try to fix the inner city. The periphery is going for a six. We need a municipalization strategy to deal with the periphery. So there's a whole range of problems. Lots of moving parts that need to be worked on when you try to fix this. I think really governments have to figure out where do they want to start in this journey and start doing something about it? That's really the need of the hour. So I'll come back to regional clusters in a bit. In fact, I want to ask you both about regional clusters and your City Connect uh, program, which you carried out so successfully before that. Uh, but just to go back to the fundamental question, like I had done an episode of The Scene and the Unseen with Shruti Rajgopalan, uh, the economist and legal scholar, and uh, and we'd spoken about urban governance. And one of the points that she made was that the incentives are skewed because the people who uh, have the power to actually do something in cities aren't accountable to you. And the people who are accountable to you, your local cooperators who you vote for directly, don't have the power to do anything. Uh, and uh, you can't expect anyone to actually give away power. Like, you can't expect state governments to then say that, oh, okay, we'll empower the cities and therefore there'll be less money to buy votes from rural regions, which crudely put is what it comes down to. Elections are all about bribing voters, uh, essentially, in one form or the other. That, that That's true. For example, I have met MLAs who actually want to run the city and are running the city. And you ask yourself... Essentially, when you got elected as an MLA, you signed up for the state legislature and to frame laws and the like. If you wanted to run the city, you should be a corporator right. or a mayor. That's the whole point. Right. So our whole setup is really messed up in terms of things. And it's a fact that and when it comes to the corporator, you get into this whole area of petty corruption, you know. People say that you don't know where the corporator ends and the contractor begins. Yeah. And you then so consequently Every time I see a pothole, I see that nexus at work. In fact, in Bombay, I'm amazed that people expect potholes to be permanently fixed. It's not going to happen because it's in the corporator contractor's nexus to make sure that roads are repaired so badly that potholes come up again and more repairs are required. Exactly. In fact, in Bangalore, uh, we we have actually doing project called Tender Sure. Sure stands for Specification for Urban Road Execution under our City Connect platform, where we have made the case that if you build your road right with stormwater drains and pedestrian footpaths, underground utilities, and take a life cycle cost view to the investment, you actually end up spending much less than the half-yearly pothole filling exercise model that we have got. And we have said that if you get it right, it will cost you more upfront, but within four to five years, you have a payback after which you're in the positive zone. Now, the system doesn't like it. We have pulled off a few roads in the in the city but there again the betting has been that citizens will like the roads and say that we want similar roads in our neighborhood as the way to change but the system per se does not like it because it goes against the repair model every six months where there's a whole lot of money right so, so so my question then uh, is to come back from the earlier point about power and accountability being in separate hands that as then a citizen reformer within the system as you have been for so many years what is your approach because the people who have the power are very different from the people who have the accountability how do you navigate that 
So the thing really is, you have to understand who has got. In fact, uh, some of us who have been working in this space have been criticized by NGOs and civil society groups, saying, "Why are you spending so much time convincing the state government to do this and that? You should be investing more energy with the corporator." But the reality is, if you can get change happening through the state government route, that's where you spend your time. Till the system is changed, where the power lies with the city government. So we do get criticized, saying that uh, this group prefers to sit with the chief minister and solve the problem rather than sit with the corporator. But the way I look at it is the following: at, at the end of the day, of course, currently in Karnataka, the chief minister is not the minister for Bangalore. But for the longest time, the chief minister was also the minister for Bangalore. And at one level, it could be argued that if he is the minister for Bangalore. He is the place that you go to get change done, which is really the state government. Right. My sense really is, for those of us who are spending time trying to bring about change, you try to spend time in places where you can make the change happen, in terms of things. Till such time that the system itself, the architecture is changed, so that the true power resides in the third tier of city government. Ward committees, ward planning, actually take shape in reality. That day is a long way off. We need to get there. And many of us who are working in this space are battling for those kind of ideas. But while we battle for those ideas to take root, we at the same time figure out how to improve mobility, how to get pedestrian walkable footpaths, how to do a better property tax system, and the like. Because you need to bring change on multiple fronts. In other words, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Exactly. You know, while that perfect state of being is a long way away, we still have to keep working. And would it then be fair to say that since administration is really a chain of jugars where you do little band-aids from time to time, what you try to do besides uh, tackling the root cause, which is a long-term project, what you also try to do is influence the specific band-aids that are put yes. and try to sell them and make sure that they are at least better band-aids and make a long. So difference. I have a term for it. You know. I- North by Northwest, like the movie. Right. See, we know that we need to head north. That's the route, the goal. Right. And often you have the. I mean, a crow would say, "I'll fly north straight," but in real life, you the way to north may be north by northwest, and that's fine. It's when some of the things you're doing is taking you south, then you have to stop and say, "Hello, what am I doing out here?" And this is not the right thing. So that's the kind of compass that should guide you as you work in this space. Let's now talk about City Connect. Uh, tell me more about City Connect. So City Connect is an idea which has been about eleven, twelve years old. It started in Bangalore, and today it's there in Chennai, Trivandrum, Punjab, and Pune, five cities. See, when you look at a city, you realize that there's one stakeholder who has really not participated in the city development, and that is the business industry, uh, the corporates. They crib about the city. They say it doesn't work. They say, "I pay my taxes. The city better work." So they're really giving those kind of press statements, which doesn't help the cause. None of them have been into the belly of the beast, which is local government, and realize that is impossible for this system to fix the place and give them the kind of city that they desire. But they don't know it, and they crib. So the idea of City Connect was to tell business, "Look, guys, the system is broken." and unless you find a way to get involved in the system in a positive manner and for things which are larger than your company it's not about the road to your company it's about the larger city fixing the city pollution roads uh, drainage sewerage the works and also the public spaces you have to embrace an idea larger than yourself 
or before you realize it, you'll find that your best talent are leaving your firm. And why did they leave? Because their spouses told them, this city doesn't work for us and our children. Let's and go somewhere else. It is actually in the long-term interest to work for the city exactly. because network effects, more talent will come in if the city is better. Yes, and for the individual company, they'll be able to retain talent and attract talent if the ecosystem works. Right. And I tell companies, your involvement in the space and the money you spend, I don't want it from your CSR. You're doing no favor as a social responsibility. I want it as a balance sheet item. In terms of I'm investing this kind of money for a better city, it's a cost item to make a better city. The payback on the top line by a city which is productive and that works, it'll more than pay anything that you invest in the city, in improving the city. And in what way can you improve the city? So the City Connect platform is a bunch of business leaders. Typically, I look for about four to six committed people who believe in the idea the platform has scope for everybody to be on it. Resident welfare associations, NGOs, citizens and the like. But basically, as the elite, it's the corporate's responsibility to take ownership and make it happen. They definitely bring in money not to do one road, but to prove a concept. Basically, proof of ideas on the ground. Spend money on designs and drawings. The big money is spent by government. And that's how we did the tender show road. So we did the designs. And therefore, the compact with this local government is, I will bring in expertise in a non-threatening manner and in a non-dictatorial manner that you better do this. And can we collaborate so that we try new models to do better roads or better drainage uh, or fixing the lake problem so that we can collectively improve? So can you elaborate on that illustration you gave me of the roads uh, that you designed and which were then... Yeah, so about a decade ago, uh, the most successful example in Bangalore is what's called the Tendershore Roads. So in the Tendershore Road has a core idea that we need to build the road around pedestrians and not uh, around motorists. The problem today is we have a motorist-oriented thinking when it comes to the roads. But actually, if you think about it, half of a city like Bangalore moves in public transport, buses... Now, guys don't fly into buses and fly out of buses. They walk on footpaths to reach it. The invisible lacks in our cities, the informal labor, etc., they walk on footpaths which are non-existent. So when you think about it, even electorally, it's actually good politics to build good footpaths, but we have never done it. We always try to cater to the motorized vehicles. So the idea here was two, two or three ideas. One idea is pedestrian at the heart of the plan. What does that mean? Wider footpaths. Pedestrians cross at grade, not taking them over, over bridges. And when there's a conflict, you rule in favor of the pedestrian. You have a hierarchy, pedestrian, cyclists, bus transport, and then the motor vehicles. Motor vehicles will get uniform lanes end to end. But that's all they will get. Today, they're getting just about everywhere you get space, they're pouring tar, which is a dumb way to do things. The second concept in what we did as an idea is to think life cycle costs. Instead of doing the six-monthly pothole repair, you actually spend more money up front, redo the drains, redo the uh, power lines and the sewerage lines, and spend more, but you don't have repair work. And then you do contracts which are five years maintenance all built in. Now, for example, if you take the recent Bangalore flooding, which we saw in the last one and a half uh, months, lots of areas getting flooded, the streets... That actually worked where the seven tender shore streets, their waters got drained away. There are no potholes on those roads. It works. 
and that's a proof of concept so how did it come about like okay conceptually you explained to me the thinking that was behind designing such roads but how did it come about out of city connect how did you yeah, persuade okay. people it's a so good as idea. i mentioned so city connect is this body which is uh, i mean for example in the case of bangalore it has a kiran mazumdar shah chris gopalakrishnan and a few other people what that group has got has got access to the system so when they speak the system listens and that's the big role they play there are people like us who actually are willing to run around and get and implement some of these ideas but you need access to people to listen so the proposition to the chief secretary that we made on the platform really was this idea that we will not give gyan we will spend money on doing the designs all we seek from you is you will do a pilot trial of two roads based on designs on which we will spend money on so that's how it started it took us about a year to put that whole thing together when we went back to the chief secretary he said the idea is much larger let's get also a political clearance for the idea we went to the then chief minister who said look this sounds great why are you looking at two roads we'll do 50 roads like this wow that's how it started and on the city connect platform what's now happened we spent 85 lakh rupees of the city connect money got from industry on the designs the manual and the like in return the city is now going to get has already got about 85 crores worth of roads and commitment wise we have 600 crores worth of roads on that principle so the power to get the right thing done and what's it at the end of the day it has core two core ideas pedestrian should be able to walk without fear and with comfort and second once done we don't have to repeatedly repair the roads two ideas behind that project and evangelized in this manner and i want to repeat if you want to really get things done in the system don't lecture don't give gyan be ready to work as a partner along with them know your place in the overall ecosystem then it gets accepted but if you talk down i know more you better listen to me that kind of stuff people may nod in the room but they'll kill the project outside so you have to find ways to collaborate in a healthy friendly manner with these people to go in there with humility and work hard um you know the cynic in me would say that i've seen so many civic initiatives break down over the years because of uh, diffuse responsibility or because of the free rider effect that you might go to these captains of industry and they will say hey great idea i support you but they'll expect someone else to actually do the hard work and uh, uh, you know put themselves out there but what you've had with city connectors you've actually had these captains of industry getting involved at a level deeper than that there's a reason for that if you actually see the kind of people who come on board across these cities these and their captains and leaders they are invested in the city long term right they expect their children and grandchildren to be in the city right that's very important in contrast you have industry people who flit from city to city mm. to here today there tomorrow gone day after whatever mm. they for example they just it's a plug and play people they just want to come in plug in and expect the place to work so you can't expect them to get too emotionally involved with the city so even in constructing such a platform you need to find people who are vested in the city long term only then it works because they also believe that i in fact when i go and evangelize because i've gone and evangelized this across 10 cities and crafted it in five cities i tell people if you're not willing to commit a minimum of a decade to the idea don't enter so i tell them at the door itself 
unless you're willing to think that you're going to stay with this for a long term, don't even sign up for the idea of City Connect. So by making that clear at the start, you sort of ensure that the people who join exactly, are... Uh, exactly. Right. L- let's, let's move on to talking about the future of cities and what you were talking about, these expanded sort of regional zones where cities, in a sense, become the hub of uh, urban networks. Uh, is that something that you think is organically happening anyway? Or is that something that you think needs to be proactively planned for and enabled? It is happening organically, but in a very haphazard manner. Right. It needs to actually happen in a proactive planned manner the way it needs to happen. So really, when I say it's happening in a haphazard manner, pockets are uh, developing in different places. Take a simple thing. According to me, the Ministry of Industries and the Ministry of Urban Development at the state level need to be together. Because frankly speaking, a new industrial area, it's not about just the factory. People have to live there. They have to have educational schools, social infrastructure. And in the silos of government agency, you say that's somebody else's problem. So you need a thinking, which, and that's the problem in governance. We want outcomes. Outcomes invariably are across multiple silos of government. And integration is the biggest challenge. And in our flawed system, that integrator is the chief minister and the chief secretary. Any one level below, nobody is able to do that role. So unless we crack the code on how we are going to build a governance administration architecture that cuts across this, this, the future of cities and urban areas in India is bleak. I believe, you know, we have put out a paper called the Game Changers. I have about 12 to 15 ideas as Game Changers uh, for Future Cities. Broadly, very quickly, I'll try and give the big points. One is you need to think in terms of city region. You want to fix a city, have a regional thinking. So if you're thinking of fixing Bangalore, look at the Bangalore larger metropolitan regional area, which is 8,000 square kilometers, almost 11, 12 times Bangalore's size. Look at that. Second, the periphery has got the most unplanned growth because they don't come under the civic system, which has all said and done some kind of rules and procedures. You need a municipalization strategy to deal with the periphery. For larger cities, you have to break the city corporation into smaller corporations. For example, if you take a place like Bangalore, 198 wards, 80% of them have never spoken in five years in the council meetings. And they just travel in Bangalore's traffic to the council hall. Waste of time. Decentralize and do things at the ward level, what can be done at the ward level with citizen participation. Integrate what you need to do at the city level like transport and the like. Another thing really is planning. We have static land use planning. Terrible. It is absolutely terrible. And it just gives you rules and regulations to manage land use. We need a master plan that actually embraces ideas on mobility, uh, water, sanitation, uh, environment and the like. Not happening currently. We need to do something out there. Land acquisition is a big problem as we go forward. We need to come up with innovative land pooling mechanisms, you know, their town planning schemes, a whole lot of methods. We tend to still think of one more outer ring road as a strip development. We need to think of area-based development and innovative ways to be able to procure land for public purposes. Data, information, we don't have observatories at all. We don't have a culture of respect for data. We need a spatial data center. Today, if you go to most agencies, everybody has their own GIS map. How can a city have 10 maps floating around? There's only one base map. 
you need a special center which takes care of that i could go on and on i mean there are a whole lot of other ideas please to go on and on we have time <laughs> okay let's, let's. so that's another thing that we can do the other thing which is important in this space for example is we are not paying enough attention to maintenance there's a lot of excitement in creating assets the point we spoke earlier about projects because there's scope for kickback money in projects but actually we don't budget enough for maintenance of those assets so we have a lot of decaying assets across our cities another good principle to adopt as we go forward to change our cities is we must sweat our existing assets for example we have the commuter rail uh, in many cities now many of those tracks are utilized maybe for 2 or 3 hours a day now if we can get more trains to run for local services on those racks i'm sure there are technical problems of course the biggest problem is railways is central government and uh, this is silos, state government like those said. silo issues then it's central state which is even more complicated but if you adopt the principle of sweating your existing assets you'll start thinking differently for example i always felt that while we had bil we should have also had hal airport bil could run hal airport but don't deprive the city of an existing asset and people could fly into different airports depending on the willingness to pay more or whatever exactly. rather than be dumb and say i'm shutting it down under some mou uh, in terms of thing so we need to think more innovatively and differently you want to fix for example transport and mobility keeps coming back unless we see on mobility there is no fix and many cities and state governments don't seem to get it public transport and huge investment in public transport and walkable footpaths is the only way to fix mobility problems today for example i'll just give you a quick bangalore statistic bangalore they roughly say from available data citizens make about 100 lakh trips per day 50 lakh trips of these are made in the buses 3 lakh trips are made in the metro and the balance roughly 50% are made in 50 lakh private vehicles and the 50 lakh trips in buses is made in 6500 buses So you have six thousand five hundred buses that carries half of Bangalore every day, and the other half of Bangalore travels in close to fifty lakh vehicles. Now, common sense will tell you that if I went to ten thousand or twelve thousand buses and did route rationalisation, I could go from a fifty percent modal share for transport to maybe a seventy percent modal share, and then you watch the magic on the road. But what we find our leadership are pandering. to motorized vehicles i am not saying motorized vehicles don't have a place by all means it's an aspirational thing and people should buy it if they can afford it but as public policy your job is to give them some space to drive but promote public transport as the core thing of your mobility policy and it's of course an old saw that you don't judge the modernity of a city by the quality of the private vehicles but by the quality of its public transport exactly In fact, another one, which is a really a moral hazard, if I can call it that, take the whole issue of solid waste management. We don't think anything about Bangalore, for instance, a city of ten million. Its garbage is dumped on the outskirts in villages of five thousand, polluting their water forever, their uh, crops, and a whole lot of things, and health and sanitation problems in those areas. Is it right to even do this? We have to embrace a policy like we, I spoke about mobility. where we have to say that landfills will get only about 10 to 15% of the waste and the rest will get resolved i keep saying that what we need to embrace are two really slogans the old hum do hamare do 
needs to become the segregation policy. Wet waste and dry waste, segregated source. Because without segregation, you don't have a solution for waste internationally. Second is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So my garbage must be resolved in my locality or the extended locality near my area and not in a village 40 kilometers away, out of sight, out of mind. So this, for example, is another thing that we need to embrace and go down that route and hammer away till we get there. Now, these are known and these are wicked problems to solve. But all the time what happens is you suddenly have uh, some problem on portals. They will, and that's the system loves because you have rapid release of funds, drop processes to select uh, contractors and say, fill it up, fill it up, etc. And then that's again money down the drain because when the next train comes, it again opens up. So to cut a long story short, I mean, there's a whole lot of game changers that one can go for in fixing the future of cities. It has a mix at the larger level. As I keep saying, there's the governance that needs to be think, which is really city needs to be in control of its own destiny. It ne clearly needs its own leadership. I personally believe that the directly elected mayor is the way to go to get there. I know we will get scared when we see our corporators and say, oh my God, this guy is a mayor or something. But trust me that if you incentivize the third tier of city government with true powers, the right kind of people will stand for those posts because the incentives will drive them saying it's worth my time to cut my teeth in city government. So the start really, so there are governance issues. On the administration side, I really believe that we need a municipal cadre. It's a specialist job and we are sitting with generalists. Won't work. Environmental issues, for example, are serious uh, town planning. Most cities don't have qualified transport planners, don't have qualified tra uh, town planners. How are you going to get the city you wish? So we have to address that whole issue. I really believe that laterals, we need to have a policy. I believe osmosis between people in government with people in private for both parties, if they had chance to work together, it would change both parties. That's my belief. So I believe that that's another thing that we should encourage going forward. I'm sorry, Amit, I've been rambling no, uh, a whole lot of things. I, I, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm just wrapped because a lot of these are both eye-opening and mind-blowing ideas for me. It's a lot to process. And uh, and I also love the way you figured out, um, uh, you know, a, a language to communicate these, like hum do hamare do and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, which is perfect. So my sort of, um, uh, my next question, therefore, is that, uh, when you try to communicate these ideas and the overall thinking behind these ideas to the governing class, uh, is it that they're not receptive at all because they're trapped in old ways of thinking or is it that they are sometimes receptive but the, in their incentives in the silos they inhabit are the way they are and there's not much to do? I think it's more of the late, latter. They realize that some of this holds the answer for the future. Somehow they feel powerless. You know, the problem seems so huge. And invariably, when you deal with them on a one-on-one -on -one basis, the person across the table agrees with you. I know this needs to be done. But immediately, the defense mechanism kicks in saying, but that and that is in somebody else's hands, you know. Yeah. I agree, but you know, how do we get everybody to work together to make this happen? So I really believe, hopefully, we need a new leadership that's coming out there, both political and in the bureaucracy, who says that, look, this is something I'd like to take head on. And I'd like to give it the requisite leadership. What we are handicapped by is that political leader who's maybe in charge of the city gets changed at one level. The bureaucrat definitely will get changed and will go to fisheries or some other department. And we have to start all over again. 
the funny thing that's happened for some of us who work in the system we are holding the collective knowledge of what has preceded in the last two decades on the space and what's worked and not's worked and invariably when a new person comes we again go with our toolkit and say look so you reinvent so the wheel reinvent the wheel so it's one step forward two step backwards etc i really believe the way out really is we need a little more thing from the leadership the other thing government needs to realize the way i see it is there's a huge trust deficit between government and the citizen one of the reasons that property tax compliance for example is low it's 50% or less is the citizen takes the view that government is going to misuse my money so better i cheat the government by not paying my due share of taxes than allow them have my money and cheat me so i personally feel that we need to find a way to bridge this trust deficit which brings me to the other big thing which is very badly required transparency to me you have to have increased transparency you know uh, i think it was a supreme court justice in the us who said that transparency is the best or sunlight is the best disinfectant is the same transparency right, idea what people need to realize that the more transparent you are you know i i have another analogy since i've been giving you some stories i might as well say this one also what's happening in our political system and you know somebody keeps talking about china things happen and it's not happening out here you see when you get elected i say you get elected with leadership to a lake and you start with fishing rights in the lake in that pond if i can call it that now normally in the private sector when you have a small market you say how can i expand the market how can i make the pond into a lake into a river so that there's more to go around and a smaller thing will happen that's how you start thinking here what happens is people prefer to fish in the pond that they have got rights to rather than think about expanding the pond to a lake or a river and i have asked politicians this that why don't you invest to expand because even a smaller share of a larger portion will still get you more but the politician is thinking is for a limited period exactly. of time exactly and also that is one and more and people have said this what if i don't come back i would have set the ground for the next guy to fish with more rights so i don't want to lay the ground for the next guy's fishing rights so i would rather fish and that's what you see so the the metaphorically the frothing and the pollution of our lakes that you see is essentially coming from the excessive fishing using these fishing rights in the pond rather than thinking about expanding it into a lake and more that's a great point so like you know while society and markets tend to be positive sum games everybody benefits politicians look upon governance as a zero sum game get whatever you can out of it don't leave enough for the next guy exactly. i i want to end this podcast by asking you two uh, questions one what makes you hopeful about the future of cities and urban governance in india and two what is the worst case scenario that you're worried about in in our country today So the first one really what makes me hopeful are the few wins that one has personally experienced for example in my own case the property tax reform that we did or the tender sure roads uh these are two things that i've been intimately involved in and though that's all i i've got to show for 17 years of effort i'll take it so it, the key thing really here is you need patience and resilience for the long haul and uh, for me it's a passion so i'm fine with it so that gives me hope that all is not lost because there are pockets of win that have one are visible i mean green shoots or whatever you want to call it what worries me are two actually there are two or three things that worry the one that worries me most is the fact that people are coming to cities in search of jobs 
cities are supposed to be engines of growth and jobs and the like and we if we don't cater to that cities tend to die i mean you've seen internationally whether it was cleveland pittsburgh detroit recently in the west right. cities rise they have heydays and they die people think they will never die but it's happened elsewhere and there's no reason to believe it won't happen here if we don't deliver on those aspirations of jobs and quality of living etc we could see a fair amount of unrest on the road in fact i really believe that we need city development agencies for instance just to address that job point right you know in wave 1 we were trying to say come to india if you saw davos 10 12 years ago the slogan was india everywhere today you see state summits in west karnataka vibrant gujarat emerging kerala people trying to say come to my state the next inevitable wave is going to be cities competing for investments so you're going to see that and cities and states that prepare itself earlier by proactively thinking about jobs economic development and i say jobs from the informal sector to the formal sector that's really what's required the other thing that worries me and sometimes makes me a tad unhappy as i work in this space i believe that we citizens are to blame while it's easy to blame and throw stones at the system and government and all that i think we need to look in the mirror ourselves if we did not litter if we did not uh, jump traffic signals if we kept to our lane we could in our own way make a big difference and so something that i believe that if we are going to fix the city and that worries me that our civil behavior as manifested in the cities and the roads and the by lanes could be a whole lot better and we can play a role in making that happen that's very enlightening and i have a confession to make here i consider myself the best driver in the history of bombay and the reason for that is no one changes lanes like i can but <laughs> i promise to reform after listening to you thank you so much for coming on the show ravi it's an honor thank you thank you amit nice talking to you if you enjoyed the show and want to know more about ravi's thoughts you can find his paper on urban game changers at our podcast page on pragati the magazine i edit at thinkpragati.com you can follow him on twitter at ravi chandar r a v i c h a n d a r and you can follow me at amit verma a m i t v a r m a you can browse past episodes of the scene and the unseen at seenunseen.in thank you for listening If you enjoyed listening to the scene in the unseen check out another great show by IVM podcast Made in India hosted by my friend May Thomas where every week she profiles up and coming independent indian bands you can download it on any podcasting networks Excuse me bhaiya excuse me bole madam menu mein kya hai menu mein scene unseen hai podcast hai on course hai cyrus says hai made in india rediscovery project empowering series sex wax hai ivm likes hai simplified hai keeping it queer hai things and destinations hai my neighbor zuckerberg hai aur the fan garage hai aapko kya chahiye uh ek baar repeat kar denge kya repeat repeat nahi karta hum aap jao ivmpodcast.com pe aur suno ye sab ya fir download karo unka app sab aapki ungliyon pe <laughs>